This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe. Now through December 26th, get up to $50 off each 23andMe DNA kit. Give the ultimate personalized gift by going to 23andMe.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. As it is Wednesday, we'll be diving into healthcare. Today's date is December 20th. I'm Christine Hargis, and I'm joined via Skype by a longtime Fool.com contributor, Todd Campbell. Todd, how's it going? Hi, Christine. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. So, as our listeners are probably aware, if they've been listening already this week, we are doing a year in review here on Industry Focus, where each sector is recapping the major stories and headlines from their respective coverage areas from 2017. Most of the stories that Todd, you and I are about to highlight happened over the course of the year. So, we won't be going chronologically. In fact, we're actually going alphabetically according to how we labeled the different stories in our show notes. So, just want to make sure no listener wastes brain power trying to figure out why we chose this order. Todd, do you want to kick things off? I tell you, Christine, I got I got to admit to you and to all the listeners, I struggled with uh, with this show a little bit only because when you're you know, when you're knee deep in the trenches of, of an industry or a sector, it's, sometimes it's hard to pull yourself up and get up in the tree and get a bird's eye view of the landscape and say, that, OK, this is this is where we've been. And hopefully, you know, this may be where we're going. I mean, it's also um, but, hard just to determine what actually happened in 2017. There are a couple of stories. I was like, oh, that was a huge deal. It's like, no, that happened in 2016. I mean, it's, it's such an arbitrary cutoff date, but we thought it was important to pull stories from all the way back in January and also the ones that have been recently making news. Exactly, exactly. Probably one of the, I would say that if, if 2016 was the year of you know drug price scandals, that maybe 2017 we could label as the year of uh, repeal and replace of, of, of Obamacare. You know, I mean, you couldn't, in the first six months especially, you couldn't, you know, turn on a computer or a TV and not be hit by a story about the latest that's going on in Congress about, you know, trying to, to change um, or reform healthcare. And, you know, I, I, you know, just give people a little bit of background. I'm sure that most of our listeners are very familiar with this topic. We've covered it in the past, but you know, the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010. It opened for business in 2013. And what it did is it, is it um, established state-by-state marketplaces where insurers could compete for um, your business for in the individual market. And then also it expanded Medicaid in states that opted in to do that. Uh, as a result, you know, more than 20 million Americans since the passage of the ACA are now insured by it. However, there's been a lot of pushback on it because, you know, obviously insuring this many people can be a little bit pricey from a government standpoint. Um, and there's also been some a lot of concerns about uh, mandating insurance in, in a country that's based on freedoms. Right. We don't want to necessarily be told that we have to go get it. We should want to go get it. And and so that's been an issue, too. So, of course, the Republicans won in 2016 on a platform that included the repeal and replacement of the ACA. Uh, and, and through the first six months of the year, they had decided, OK, this is going to be the, the policy that we try to, to get done first. And, you know, they stumbled in March. The House tried to get a, a repeal and replacement plan done and they weren't able to get enough votes. So they they shelved that vote. And then in, in the summer. Um, the Senate's attempts also came up shy of the votes that were necessary. And as a result, repeal and replace was basically considered you know, DOA for the rest of 2017 until 
tax reform. And then it all became front and center again because in order to allow for tax reform to pass with a simple majority vote, they needed to come in uh, with a bill that would increase the deficit by less than $1.5 trillion over 10 years. To do that, they included repealing the mandate because the mandate um, will save the government some money because they won't have to pay the subsidies. They won't have to subsidize insurance if, if, if fewer people end up signing up. So long story short, and to be continued right into 2018, um, ACA remains, um, but the mandate will disappear um, over time. And, and from an investing standpoint, of course, then it becomes how do we figure out how this is going to affect insurers? You know, should I should I not own insurers in 2018 or not, right? Yep, absolutely. I think going back one year ago, if I had looked at the future of Obamacare and said, is this going to survive given the current political climate? I would not have I would not have anticipated that the Republicans in control right now wouldn't have been able to get the job done on repealing and replacing it. Um, the individual mandate has always been the least popular part of Obamacare, so it, it's not surprising that that is looking to be definitively on the chopping block. Um, but it, it, as you mentioned, it does remain to be seen how this will actually impact insurers and the broader healthcare market. Yeah, I think the big takeaway from from this news story of 2017 is simply that you know in, investors are probably going to want to focus more on insurers that are less exposed to the individual marketplace and more exposed to, say, Medicare. So, for example, a a company like Humana or to the employer-sponsored market um, because job growth may offset some of the the declining enrollment associated with repealing the mandate on that side of the world. Maybe a United Healthcare does well in in that side. Next up, turning from policy to science, a hugely important headline in medicine. In May, cancer drug Keytruda was approved for a certain biomarker-positive type of uh, cancer of any type. So prior to this moment, cancer treatment was determined by the original location of a patient's tumor. However, as the field of precision medicine advances, scientists are finding that it might make more sense to tailor treatment based on the genetic makeup of the tumor itself rather than just its origin. So Keytruda, which is a PD-1 drug, had been on the market for several years, approved specifically for a handful of different cancers, but it is the unique nature of the approval that came in May that makes it worth celebrating. Yeah, pretty crazy story here in, in that, you know, now regardless of where the, the, the cancer originates, patients would have access to Keytruda. So it doesn't have to be, oh, I've got lung cancer, or I've got this other kind of cancer. It can be just, okay, I've got this type of tumor. And uh, as a result, regardless of the origination of where the cancer started, uh, I can now take this drug. Which is super cool, and it's also, I I bet we're going to end up saying this about every single topic that we hit today, but there will be a continuation of this story going into 2018. For example, one of the companies that we've covered on this show, Loxo Oncology, has their drug Laro, which is seeking improvement for any tumor that expresses the TRK protein that the drug targets. They expect that they'll complete their new drug application, uh, the submission to the FDA in early 2018. This one would also be a landmark because this drug is not already approved, whereas Keytruda had been on the market for a few years, and so you had real-life data about its efficacy and, very importantly, its safety. Laro is seeking approval as for its first approval in this type of uh, pan-location-based tumor uh, type of approval, um, which will be very interesting to watch. 
Yeah, it will be. And I think, you know, probably going into 2018, investors also want to keep an eye on the companies that are going to help to identify um, which patients will benefit most from this movement towards biomarkers. And, you know, we talked previously in the show this past year about Foundation Medicine, a company that I happen to like a lot. Uh, they recently won approval for a screening um, test that allows them to basically take a patient's sample and look at it and figure out, okay, because of what we've determined from this sample, these drugs may be working, may work best in the patient. These clinical trials are going on that could be, you know, a good fit for the patient. Um, and here's some grant money that may be available to that patient as well. Yep, which is very exciting. Um, I know our next topic also is on the, the lines of oncology. Todd, do you want to share that one? Well, you know, I think it's hard to talk about 2017 and not talk about cars. And I'm not talking about Elon Musk and Tesla here. I'm talking about chimeric antigen receptor therapies and specifically CAR-Ts, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. This is a very, it's a game-changing, it's a very new approach to, to, to tackling cancer. And essentially what you're talking about with CAR-Ts is you've got a patient who has a specific type of cancer. You take the T cells out of that patient. You re-engineer them so that they can spot and bind to and kill a protein a tumor that or cancer cell that expresses a certain um, protein. And then you infuse those back into the patient. And the response rates that we saw in 2017 to these therapies was downright remarkable. I mean, you had heavily treated patients um, in, in, in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and you saw data from Kite Pharmaceutical um, showing incredibly high response rates to its Yescarta. You had um, pediatric um, ALL patients who responded incredibly well to Novartis's um, CAR-T called Kimraya. And those response rates were so good that you know the the FDA rushed them through rushed through with approvals to them. I mean, you've got now two CAR Ts on the market, which is quite remarkable considering that you know the the time that these went into clinical trials only a few years ago, and now that now they're available to patients. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a major advance, and that story is going to continue into 2018 because you've got all sorts of other studies that are going on right now in other types of cancers. Um, where these drugs are being evaluated. So you're going to get data readouts uh, from companies like Juno Therapeutics. You're going to you know, obviously start to get sales numbers come in from companies like Gilead Sciences who bought Kite Pharma, right, Christine? And that's Earlier crazy that that's just like a sub point of this broader point. I mean, that was a huge headline on its own, but that just goes to show how big this entire CAR-T story has been this year. Right, and there's been so much research going on in CAR-T CAR -T, that it wouldn't shock me if there's more consolidation uh, next year within the CAR-T players by some of these bigger companies like you know Gilead Sciences. Um, I doubt Gilead will do another, but I think it's something to keep an eye on 2018 that CAR-Ts continue to advance and it's pretty remarkable science and you know they could get used earlier and earlier in patient treatment. Keep an eye on it. This, this is going to be a story of 2018 as well. Did I just hear a dog in the background agreeing with you? I, yes, that was my dog, and my dog is a huge fan of CAR-Ts, apparently. He's, he's a Gilead bull. <laughs> Absolutely. So our next story goes back to policy, uh, or government at the very least, which is the turning tide in the FDA. So the FDA has always had to balance two competing interests, getting drugs to market as soon as possible for the sake of the patients that need them, and also pressure from the drug makers who are eager to profit, 
And on the other hand, keeping people safe by really scrutinizing data and demanding that drugs show that they're both effective and safe. And the FDA has traditionally been very cautious in approving new drugs, particularly following everything that happened with thalidomide in the mid-1900s, which, if you're not familiar with the story, we did an entire episode on thalidomide on May 24th, so go check that out. But with Trump's appointment of Dr. Scott Gottlieb as the FDA commissioner, who was sworn in on May 11th, it appears that some of these strict regulations will be relaxed. One particular story that I want to highlight is the approval of Bevixa from Portola Pharmaceuticals. This blood thinner technically failed its phase three trials, which you would think would be a non-starter. You can't be approved if you failed your trials. But after some post hoc massaging of the numbers, and I say this as a Portola bull, don't think I'm criticizing them here, the drug ended up being approved. And I think this turned a lot of heads. That's why you saw such a pop in the stock on the day of its approval. And I think it signals more broadly that 2017 has been a year that the FDA has actively committed to changing the balance between caution and expediency and leaning a little bit more towards the end of getting drugs to market quickly. You know, what's interesting, Christine, as I was thinking about the fact that you were going to be talking about this one on the show, I started thinking about where did that really start? And for me, it started with Sarepta Therapeutics in 2016. It's really accelerated here in 2017 because, you know, if you remember what happened with Sarepta, they had this muscular dystrophy drug that the advisory committee for the FDA actually voted against recommending approval of. And the FDA said, no, we are going to recommend it after all. We're going we're gonna to actually approve it, and it's going to go to the market, and, and we don't care what you said about it, Mr. Adcom. Um, and, and I think that that basically kind of opened, cracked open the door for what we saw in 2017, which is a, a major push to work very closely with drug makers to help them design and accelerate the development of new and novel drugs. I mean, we just saw, right, uh, this past week, I think, Christine, a new um, letter, guidance letter, from uh, Gottlieb talking about gene therapies and the steps that they're going to be taking to try and, and get these gene therapies to market more quickly. So yeah, it's fascinating. And I think that what it means for investors is that you're going to see more uh, and more drugs win approval more quickly than you would have normally seen. So you know, if you've normally expected a decision in 10 months, maybe you're going to see a lot more of them coming early. So you mentioned gene therapy, and this was not on our list, but it's something that I meant to highlight back when we were talking about CAR-T. So technically, those were the first, those meaning um, the two CAR-T therapies that uh, that you mentioned, Yescarta and Kimraya, those are the first two gene therapies approved in the United States. But I would say that the first true gene therapy that actually fixes the genes of people who have an inherited disease was just approved yesterday, Tuesday, and it is Luxturna, the drug from Spark Therapeutics that we were just talking about last week. So I wanted to kind of wedge that into this episode just as a follow-up from something that we opened up as a topic for discussion last week. Yeah, and it was an early approval. I mean, yeah. just to, to, to it was almost that a month early. Home, you know, again, you've got you've got the FDA moving extremely quickly. There was a flurry of activity this past week. You also saw Exelixis win um, early approval for their supplemental application for their kidney cancer drug. Um, and I think that decision wasn't expected till February. So yeah, you're seeing these decisions come come faster and more quickly, and hopefully not at the detriment of patient safety. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe. This holiday, give your friends and family the ultimate personalized gift: a DNA kit from 23andMe. They can learn about their genetic ancestry, their inherited traits, and even information about their health. What other gift can do all that? 
So this holiday, give a gift that is unique as the ones you love with 23andMe. Now through December 26th, get up to $50 off each kit when you go to 23andMe.com slash fool. Todd, I believe it's your turn for our next highlight. And honestly, our sponsor is perfect for today because that next highlight is genetic sequencing. That's a good segue. Right? I mean, it, it became mainstream this year. It's much more common. It's not just, you know, first movers who are going out and using these services to to learn more about their, their DNA profile. And I think that one of the things, reasons that this has been able to become so much more mainstream is because you've got companies like Illumina who are at the forefront of gene sequencing and they're developing uh, faster and better uh, systems that allow you to sequence genes uh, for a lot less money. I mean, that used to be incredibly expensive and time consuming to sequence genes. And now it can be done relatively quickly with a level of, of sensitivity that has, uh, that hard to imagine three years ago. And you know, you've got this quest now to drive the cost of gene sequencing from you know, $1,000, which was, you know, crazy cheap to begin with, to as low as $100 over time because of Illumina's latest machines, the NovaSeq. So I think that, you know, in 2017, that's, that's, a, that's been a, a very big story is the mainstreaming of genetic sequencing. And I think that, you know, we're going to see that increasingly, increasing, increasingly over the coming years, more and more people are going to have to know about their particular genetic makeup and they're going to share that with others, uh, including caregivers, to, to get more insights about their body and how their body works and how their body may respond to medicine. Yeah, and this fits right in with several other of the stories that we've told here today. If you have a wider spread adoption of gene sequencing, and particularly low-cost gene sequencing, then the research can be furthered, new drugs can potentially be brought to market that do target specific genetic makeups. And I think overall, this is an industry that had a huge advancement in 2017 with the introduction of the NovaSeq in January, and will still continue to be a huge story in 2018 and beyond. Yeah, and I think a lot of that's going to be tied to deep sequencing. If you're not familiar with deep sequencing, uh, when it comes to sequence, the sequencing story, uh, spend a little time on Google checking it out because it's really intriguing, listeners. Um, you know, basically, you know, the way that sequencing works now is it doesn't go very deep into the into say the tumor tissue. So the amount of uh, insight that is provided is kind of limited. And as we get more uh, better and better at being able to sequence, we can go deeper and deeper and come up with even greater understandings. And that's very, very important in figuring out, you know, exactly what's the cause of different tumors, for example, um, within patients. It, it's just, it's a fascinating subject, and it's going to be, I guess, the backbone of drug discovery and patient treatment over the course of the next, I don't know, generation. For sure. This next story has been living in the shadows for years, and just this year, it really broke out into the spotlight of national attention. It is the opioid crisis. Um, first, some numbers. Every day, 650,000 opioid prescriptions are dispensed. And deaths in the U.S. due to opioids has quadrupled since 1999, which means that 78 people die from an opioid-related overdose every single day, which it roughly equates to the number of people that are killed in car crashes. The deaths from heroin alone outnumbered gun homicides in 2015. So this is a hugely impactful crisis facing our nation. And so I wanted to highlight a few dates that stand out from the past year. 
On March 29th, Trump established the President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, and Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, was made the chairman. On May 23rd, uh, previously mentioned FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb asked for more forceful steps to stem the crisis. On July 31st, a White House panel asked Trump to declare it a national public health emergency. And Trump made several statements throughout the summer suggesting that a strong response is needed, which culminated in October 26th when he actually did uh, declare it a public health emergency and directed federal agencies to provide more grant money to combat this epidemic, which, if you look at the details, doesn't actually unlock new funding, but it shuffles it around, and it certainly gives some legitimacy to the efforts directed on combating this. I mean, it's so abundantly clear that something needs to be done. And so while it's heartbreaking that this story exists at all, I am really glad that it has caught the attention of policymakers. Estimates are that the opioid epidemic cost $55 billion in health and social costs each year, not to mention the absolutely immeasurable pain and suffering of addicts and their families and friends, which is something that affects us all. Yeah, we could probably do an entire show. And actually, we did earlier this year. <laughs> Back in March, I think we, we covered the opiate crisis in a lot of depth. There's so many things to unpack in this story. You know, you've had, uh, you know, one of the, I suppose, the advantages of the fact that it's now become, you know, front and center in people's minds is that it's uncovered a lot of bad actors and bad, uh, bad actions by people employed. Uh, at different companies that are involved in the production of, of opioid medicine. I mean, we've obviously talked about Insys Therapeutics in the past and some of the um, the marketing of its uh, cancer, breakthrough cancer pain drug, uh, Subsys, and how there were arrests and there could be potential fines associated with off-label uh, marketing of, of that drug. You had McKesson that agreed to $150 million settlement uh, for not you know, vetting the pharmacies more more carefully that it was distributing drugs to. Um, and you've got, like you mentioned, the FDA, you know, taking a lead role in, you know, providing guidance saying, listen, we're going to do what we can to facilitate new abuse deterrent drugs um, reaching the market quickly. You know, they improve, approved Zilretta from Flexion. Uh, earlier this year, uh, uh, that could the that drug could theoretically reduce the use of opiates in patients with um, <clears throat> osteoarthritis of the knee. You've got a drug drug by Nectar uh, NKTR 181 that could get filed for approval in back pain next year, which crosses the blood blood brain barrier sl more slowly and theoretically could displace opiate use. Uh, in back pain patients if it's approved. So I'm th I think that that's going to be a story as well that continues. And maybe that next chapter in that story is going to be, okay, how how these next generation solutions for pain uh, end up replacing or displacing the use of drugs like OxyContin. The next highlight that we want to share is a little bit lighter in nature. Todd, do you want to explain that one? Retail pharmacies. Wow. <laughs> what a year. You know, it's just been remarkable, the ups and downs that we've seen in the retail pharmacy stocks. And, you know, in particular, the activity and the action we saw between Walgreens and its plan tie up with Rite Aid. Right, Christine? Absolutely. This was a saga. A saga is a great way to 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 to, to, to frame it. I mean, the, the, originally Walgreens had planned to buy Rite Aid, lock, stock, and barrel. They announced it in 2015. It was a 17 billion dollar deal if you include debt. But you know, regulators were very nervous about consolidating that much market power 
um, in those two pharmacy retail chains. And as a result, they had to restructure the deal, and that wasn't good enough. Then they came back with another restructuring, and that wasn't good enough. Finally, in June of this past year, of this year, they uh, Walgreens said, you know what, forget it. We're not going to try to buy right anymore, Lockstyle. We're just going to buy a bunch of stores, hand them a pile of cash, and, and move on with our lives. Yeah, I was editing an article uh, talking about Fred's, which was a chain that was rumored to be picking up a bunch of these Rite Aid stores that would need to be divested. And I feel like they really suffered throughout this entire thing, because when it fell apart, it's like, eh, well, that's not going to happen anymore. And so they Yeah, they, they were going to get a thousand stores, right, yeah, they got the, the and, short and all of a sudden it's like, nope, you're not. Yep. So something that is also very intricately tied to this story is the recent news that CVS is going to at least attempt to acquire Aetna, the insurer, for $69 billion, which is absolutely enormous and is very much a vertical uh, integration. Remains to be seen whether or not it will pass. But what I really want to get out here is why do these retail pharmacies feel the need to go through all this M&A activity? I know, right? And that's probably the biggest backstory to this whole this whole situation with the retail pharmacies is you're looking at and you're saying, okay, why is it that these already really large companies feel the need that they have to either vertically integrate or horizontally integrate or whatever? And it really comes down to, you know, potential threats, potential threats from none other than Amazon, for example, you know, which is a drug, which is, I'm sorry, a distribution and purchasing powerhouse, right? I mean, if they decide to enter the same market as CVS and Rite Aid, it could dramatically reshape how people go about purchasing and getting their hands on their medicines. And that rumor has been around that Amazon's going to get involved in pharmacy retail for a big chunk of this year. Yeah, Amazon completely underpins all of this, and so it remains to be seen whether how Amazon is going to affect this market. I mean, there's there's the obvious point of well, you know, foot traffic to retail stores, brick and mortar, has gone down now that people shop online, and so you can see how the retail pharmacies are afraid of what that might do if people aren't coming into the store anymore to pick up their their prescriptions and to buy whatever. Uh, they they have less cross sell opportunities. Uh, mail order drugs might become even more uh, widely used uh, than they currently are, and that's also something that Amazon is looking to get into. I mean, this is really an industry that is going to have to pull some dramatic levers in order to not be disrupted by Amazon. Right. There could be a lot of disruption. I mean, we talk about, you know, if you look back a decade ago when you had Walmart and Target and some of these others kind of move into the into the retail pharmacy space, there was a lot of disruption there. But you had a lot of independent pharmacies who either sold to these bigger pharmacies or uh, went out of business. You had, um, generally speaking, um, more players now competing for those uh, dollars uh, spent on on medicine, and you know, if you get a company now, Amazon, other online retailers who come up come out and start um, selling uh, access to medicine online, then you know, again, like you said, you could get less foot traffic. You've got to come up with new ways to connect with your consumers and make sure they're still coming to your stores. And I think that that's really what's behind Rite Aid's decision, Walgreens' actions. And, you know, CVS's decision to try and, and integrate with Aetna. 
Yep, absolutely. So turning to our last story of the day, this one firmly has its roots in 2016. There were big headlines regarding an antisense RNA drug called Spinraza, which was the first ever treatment for spinal muscular atrophy that won approval in December 2016. I will still count it as a 2017 story because it launched earlier this year. It is a drug on which Biogen and Ionis Pharmaceuticals were collaborators. For some background, SMA is a chronic disease. It's life-threatening. It's caused by inadequate levels of a protein called SMN, which is very important for the survival of motor neurons. So Spinraza, the drug in question, it uh, tinkers with the gene responsible for creating this protein, SMN, uh, in order to bump up the production of it. and then hopefully improving the motor activity of patients. So it's not necessarily a cure, but it does help. And one of the major reasons why this caught so much attention is due to the price. SMA affects roughly 9,000 people in the US and around 10,000 people in the EU. This is a very rare disease. As regular listeners of the show will know, rare disease drugs are often the most expensive, and Spinraza was no exception. One of the many drugs that were indicative of the larger theme that Todd, you alluded to earlier, which is drug pricing, the annual cost of Spinraza is $750,000 for your first year of treatment and $375,000 for maintenance therapy, which is ongoing thereafter. So I would say that even though 2016 was very much a year of scrutiny over drug pricing that definitely continued to be a theme of 2017. And I would anticipate that it'll continue to make headlines in 2018 as well. What I think is really interesting about this story, too, is the fact that it's basically the coming of age of RNA and the research basically into the messengers that are responsible for um, having the genes uh, encode to make certain proteins that oftentimes can get mutated, overexpressed, underexpressed in patients who suffer from disease. And you know, you've got this approval, obviously, of Spinraza that's game changing for this patient population. And you know, in 2017, you also saw Ionis and its competitor Alnilim, easy for me to say, um, <laughs> file for FDA approvals of their TTR amyloidosis drugs. Um, and those drugs could win FDA approval in 2018, but it was 2017 here that they filed for for approvals. And if those get approved, then you've got another two RNA drugs that are reaching the market and helping a relatively small patient population. You also have got um, Axia Therapeutics, which was spun out of Ionis earlier this past year, uh, and they've had their applications accepted for their RNA drug um, for uh, a type of of high triglycerides um, condition that's relatively rare. So, you know, RNA and its use in rare disease Definitely um, took a step forward in 2017, you know, which is important because you know research has been going on in this area um, for the better part of 15, 20 years. So it's good to see finally, you know, getting some of these across the finish line. Yeah, it's somewhat reminiscent of the story that we told with CAR T, where this year, 2017, was really the pivotal one for this research that's been going on forever and ever, and of course will continue to become important as we see how these drugs actually play out in the market and as the science develops. But I would say. 2017, definitely a year to remember for both CAR-T and RNA therapies. As we wrap up, I wanted to offer a list of Fool.com's recommended reading for 2017. We compiled the best of the best of the many thousands of articles published by writers like Todd Campbell on Fool.com this past year, and we have it all ready to go, ready to send out. Just let us know if you'd like to receive a copy. Our email address is industryfocus at Fool.com, and if you haven't picked up on it already, we love hearing from our listeners. 
As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!